The truth we want to face today is that we don't have to reach out into space for the ultimate answers. We only have to reach out our hand and pick up a Bible. This book is the bestseller of all time, and in the fifth document of this classic, an incredible claim is made. On Mount Sinai, the eternal God revealed himself to the Jewish nation. He proclaimed the Ten Commandments as the foundation of all morality, and he invited his people to love him. What have you decided about this Sinai revelation? Is it only a myth, the folktale of an ancient people? Or is it the voice of the eternal God calling us to worship and adore him? Here's Dave Wordson to help us interact with the issues raised in Deuteronomy chapter 4. I would listen to the news and they mentioned that funds were allocated by our government to train some of our high-powered radio telescopes and they're listening to see if there are voices that are out there and we're listening and trying to find out whether there might be some uh, little extraterrestrial beings out there and the basic idea is you know if we could find some intelligent life out there maybe it's evolved in the modern philosophy the idea is maybe it's evolved a little bit farther than we have and maybe they're going to have some answers. In other words, what about this problem of war? You know, what about the problem of terrorists and people that just kind of lose everything and become insane and they want to blow up the whole planet? Maybe these little green men out there somewhere will have the answer for that. What about famine, terrible famines in Africa? Maybe these extraterrestrial beings will have a greater intelligence. They will have just developed a little bit more and their universities will be farther advanced maybe they'll have the answer and so on and on it goes maybe we're going to find the answer out there even as i talk to you i notice some of you begin to smirk and you smile but i want you to understand that there's something very important about that hunger to hear a voice from beyond my colleague has never trained radio telescopes for outer space even chimpanzees as smart as they might be they don't worry about whether the world's going to go up in smoke. They don't worry about their problems of starvation. They just kind of live and exist, and that's it. When they die, that's it. And so the very fact that there's this incredible hunger, there's this incredible desire to, to find out something that's beyond there, tells us that eternity is written on the human heart. The tragedy is, is that secular man is willing to spend millions and millions of dollars to try to hear a voice from beyond, and yet many won't just reach out their hand. In fact, many of them, all they would have to do is just reach out to their coffee table in many American homes on that coffee table because some salesman has come through, usually while he was putting himself through school, and he sold one of these big family Bibles. And really, if you want to hear a voice from beyond, you don't have to listen to outer space. You just have to reach out your hand and pick up the Bible. And when you do so, you're going to be faced right on the first page with, in the beginning, God. And one of the basic ideas, in fact, it's so basic for those of us that believe in Christ, that we forget how mind-boggling it is. You see, I want you to think of the contrast between someone that doesn't believe God has spoken Someone that really believes, just imagine for yourself, believing someone that doesn't think that God has invaded this planet in the person of Jesus. Imagine that you're someone that just believes in, pro in progress and development and that just by the progress of, of force, of evolution, 
of matter and energy working together in a mysterious way, perhaps we're going to find the answer someday, somehow, because somewhere out there we're going to find an answer. I want you to feel the loneliness of that position. I want you to feel the agony of not knowing when you go to a funeral whether the person has gone somewhere, what's happened to them. And it focuses the importance of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Because when you open the Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 4, you can, have, you can begin to think, you know, what in the world does this Old Testament passage have to do with me? And yet what we're going to find out is that the theme of this passage wrestles with the question, has the almighty God of the universe spoken? Has he said something? Do we live on a planet where the great transcendent almighty infinite being has chosen to reveal himself? Or are we left in the dark, lonely, alone, without any answers? And Deuteronomy chapter 4 wrestles with that issue. Moses has just been told, he's been told several times, but as we, as we finished our lesson the last time, Moses was told that he wasn't going to be able to enter the promised land. The Lord God said, I'm going to raise up Joshua. And I want Joshua to enter the promised land. And then the Lord told Moses something very important. He said, Moses, what I'd like you to do, you're going to die. You're not going to be able to enter into the promised land. You're going to be able to see it. I'm going to give you a great vision of it but you're not going to be able to enter in. But there's a young man that's now going to assume the leadership, and what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to encourage him. I'd like you to encourage him. In fact, the entire rest of the book of Deuteronomy, primarily Deuteronomy chapter 4 through chapter 30, is Moses doing exactly that. Not only encouraging Joshua, but encouraging all the people of Israel. I want to begin by by mentioning to you the power of encouragement. And I want you to stop and think as a school teacher. I want you to think as a parent. I want you to think as a fellow believer in the body of Christ. I want you to think about the power of encouragement. What I find personally myself is that I tend to gravitate not towards encouragement, but towards criticism. How about you? I tend to notice like the piano teacher that was teaching the young pupil. And one day the parent came running in and says, my child comes home from your lesson every single day and they're just in total tears and they're crying their eyes out because they think that they'll never be able to learn how to play the piano. And the piano teacher said, you know, if they're doing, if they're, when they're playing it right, everything's fine. I correct them when they do it wrong. That's what my job is, to correct them. A lot of times we have that idea as a coach or as a teacher, as a person. In fact, I find a part of my personality, and I invite you to look inside too, it grooves and focuses on criticism. I can have 30 people tell me, boy, the Lord's really working in my life, and I'm really growing from your teaching, and, and God's really speaking to me. I hardly even hear it. One person, one person says, boy, that was horrible. Man, what in the world? I, I, was, I was totally fogged out. I didn't understand a blessed thing you were trying to get across. Why don't you just retire? Just one person can do that, and I find that's all I hear. How about you? Now, what that illustrates is the power of criticism, the power of negative thinking. 
And what I would challenge you to do, I believe that the Holy Spirit wants to turn every single one of you into a Moses who is an encourager. I believe the Lord wants to take every one of you, older men and women, and turn you into a Moses, or in the feminine sense, a Mosine, if you want to call her that, who will take a younger person under their wing and encourage them. Encourage them. And it will totally change your life. I would challenge you this week, every time you think of saying a negative thing, to cut someone down, to criticize them, ask yourself, have I given that same individual 10 words of encouragement? It will totally change your life. It was worth the price of mission to come just to hear that. It will totally change your kids. It will totally change your students. It will totally change your life. Prof. Hendricks, when I was going to Dallas Theological Seminary, Prof. Hendricks had just a terrible negative opinion of red pencils. You know, because evidently as a kid growing up in Philadelphia, his father was an alcoholic, and he would go to school, and there was red marks all over his paper. And he used to talk about being a little kid, and, and, the, and those red marks, when he took them home, you know, it could sometimes mean, you know, some violence. And so in seminary, he would write notes. Excellent point. Good insight. The Lord's preparing you for the ministry. I can't believe what's happening in your life. Great insight into the Word of God. Now, he'd been doing this for 30 years, maybe not quite that long when I was there. But the power of encouragement. I remember getting back to those papers. You know, 10 plus. 10 plus, plus, plus. How different from a negative, critical spirit. Do you wonder why Dr. Howard Hendricks is known as the prop? across the world. And there are Dallas Theological Seminary students that have gone out throughout the world with confidence, believing that the Holy Spirit can do something through them. The power of encouragement. As we study the book of Deuteronomy, I want you to realize that this book, the entire book, is a book of encouragement. But it's also a book of honesty. And Moses kind of introduces us to the basic thrust of his entire message. And what he tells us is that he wants the children of Israel to consider a mountain. He wants this generation poised on the edge of the promised land to consider what, how God revealed himself to them at Mount Sinai. And so he begins in his introduction by telling the people that they need to take heed, they need to listen to the words that were given at Mount Sinai. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 1. Hear now, sounds like mom and dad, listen to me. Listen to me, or like the Lord Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear now, O Israel. And we're going to join in and listen in to God speaking through Moses to the children of Israel and indirectly through us, and in fact very directly to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The decrees and laws I'm about to teach you, follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. I want you to notice something. The theme of these verses is, I want you to listen to what I say so that you can what? Live. Let me say that again. Moses says, I want you to listen to me. I want you to listen to the commands I'm going to give you. I want you to listen to the moral principles I'm going to teach you. And everyone in the audience says, why do you want us to listen? And Moses said, so you can live. The basic thrust of this message is this. Draw near to God. Obey God, listen to what he says, 
This is your life. Turn away from God. Become an idolater that begins to focus on the mighty force or begins to look within for some answers through mystical, uh, transcendental kind of meditation. Turn away from the revealed word of Scripture and you're going to be dead. An individual will be dead. A nation will be dead. A world will be dead. The whole thrust of this Deuteronomy 4 and the entire rest of the book, you've got it. Draw near to God. Obey Him. You'll live. This is your life. Turn away from Him. This is your death. That's his basic point. Now when he says that, he goes on and says, listen, be very careful not to add or subtract. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it. But keep the commandments of the Lord God that I give you. As you study the word of God, there are two problems you can have as you study the scripture. Number one, you can add to the scripture. In other words, you can make it say some things that it really isn't saying. That was the ancient Pharisaic error. The Pharisees believed in all the word of God, Genesis through Malachi, all the word of God that they had, they believed it. Their problem was that they added to it. They added tradition. They added rules and regulations. They added all kinds of paraphernalia, all kinds of ceremonies. They added to the Word of God. They did it with a very good intent. They wanted to protect the Word of God. They wanted to keep people far away from breaking God's commandments so they thought they could set up a hedge outside of God's commandments that would protect God's people. Instead, they diverted God's people from really listening to the voice of God. The second way you can fail God's word is by subtracting from it. That's the modern error. It's the modern era of criticism. Higher prideful criticism starts to subtract one portion after another from the word of God. The basic idea is that Deuteronomy... In much of modern critical scholarship, the very portion of scripture that we're studying, the critic would tell you that Moses didn't write the core of this. We have an unknown editor. We don't really know who it was. Maybe it was Jeremiah. It was some editor called the Deuteronomist who wrote all the way from Deuteronomy through 2 Kings and no one knows who his name is. No one really knows exactly where he wrote. He's the mystery genius of the Jewish faith. But that little change, Moses didn't really write this, we're, we know, we've studied the text very carefully, and we know more than hundreds of years of Jewish and Christian teaching. There's an unknown editor. The next step is we don't really need to obey these commands because he's really not telling us the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And what do we do? We start subtracting the word of God. Now, why do you do that? Because next chapter is going to tell us, don't steal. And we want to steal. Don't commit adultery. We want to commit adultery. You see, if we can subtract from the Word of God, if we can detract from its authority, then we're free to do whatever we'd like to do. Historians say, cut up your basic primary sources and you can say anything you want to say. And that's exactly what's happened in modern biblical scholarship. They've cut up the parchments that we have. And they have developed their own little book of learning, which, interesting enough, the stuff that they keep becomes just a reflection of the things that they think are important, the things that reflect themselves. And so the ancient warning comes back to what? It comes back to you and me. And it says this, 
don't add to the word of God. Remember Eve? God never told her not to touch the fruit, the tree. She added to the word of God. She focused on the negative. Don't ever do that. Don't add to God's word. But don't take away from it as well. Why? Because this is your life. Look at verse 3. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed them among you, everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. In order to illustrate his point, Moses takes an incident from the history of Israel that all of them were familiar with. Some of us might not be familiar with Numbers chapter 25, but it's the story where the children of Israel were poised on the plains of Moab. And the children of Moab were very much afraid of them. They hired Balaam to come and prophesy against them. Balak the king ordered Balaam the prophet to come, but Balaam could not prophesy against God's people. But Balaam said, I'll tell you how to get God's people. Get all the beautiful Moabite girls, have a big Baal festival, and just send these, these beautiful Moabite girls among the Israelites and get them to participate in this idolatrous feast with you and they'll come under the judgment of God because the Lord God of heaven is a jealous God and he will punish those who fall into idolatry, which is exactly what happened. A terrible plague broke out among the Israelites and many, about 25,000 of them, died in that plague. So Moses drives home his point. What did I tell you? The point of this message is obey God, draw near to him, and everyone tell me you will... If you turn away from him into idolatry, you will die. And he uses the point right from their history. Now, what does our society believe about that? Our society is at a place right now where we are jettisoning the book of Deuteronomy. This book is going to, be, is going to tell us that in, little, in just a few verses that the law that God gave to Israel is going to be honored among the nations. People will say you are a wise and discerning people because God gave you his law. But much of our culture today is beginning to mock God's law. They're beginning to turn away from God's moral standards. Now, what will that mean? It means this is your death. Now, I want to tell you something that's really important. It's very important to stand strong for that reality. The wages of sin is death. Deuteronomy 4 is going to drive this point home from us. You get involved in immorality. You start messing around sexually. You are walking into a haunted house of death. Whether it's homosexual immorality, whether it's heterosexual immorality, whatever immorality you get involved in, the wages of sin is death. You start destroying your body by becoming drunk day in and day out, week after week. You can stand it for a time. Babe Ruth could do it for a time, but his life was filled with sadness. The greatest talent that baseball ever knew never could coach, never could really enter into what he really wanted to do when he ended his baseball career because he was an alcoholic. It controlled him. Now, we need to stand very strongly for the idea that the wages of sin is death. That's what Moses is telling us. Remember Baal Peor. But Deuteronomy is also going to go on and tell us that these people weren't able to obey the law of God. None of us are going to be able to obey the law of God in our own strength. 
And so rather than just condemning, rather than just proclaiming right, we need to go on like the book of Deuteronomy does right in the heart of the Old Testament and proclaim not only a message of law, but a message of grace. Let's read further. Moses says, remember Baal Peor, because it illustrates how death will flow when you disobey the word of God. Look at verse 5. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom, your skill, and your understanding to the nations, what we were just speaking about. This Israel will be known as the nation with profound moral and spiritual insight. Look what it says. Who will hear about all these decrees and they will say, what will the nation say about Israel? Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? Moses focuses the claim and the pride of the nation not just on the fact that God gave them brilliant, discerning rules, but I want you to see that God begins by saying that Israel's greatest gift is the gift of a God who is near, the gift of a God who hears when you pray. Now, almost all of you just assume, almost all of you just assume when you pray, God hears you. You assume that God listens. As you pray to God, you think of God being a personal God. You think of Him being someone who can think, who can feel, and who can decide. You think of Him as being someone who can understand you. If I were to ask you, how many of you have prayed during the past week? Almost all of you would raise your hand and say, yes, I prayed. If I were to go on and say, how many of you think God heard you? You would say, yes, I think God heard you. And if I were to ask you, how many prayed all at once? In other words, how many of you think that some of your prayers interrupted what somebody else was praying and almost all of you are convinced that God was listening to every one of you as an individual, right? And it's all true. His computer bank of telephone, the, you know, the heavenly bell system didn't get overcrowded. It didn't give you a busy signal. That's the incredible gift of the biblical God. In the ancient world, that wasn't so. The rest of the nations didn't believe that their gods were near. They believed you needed to go through all kinds of hocus-pocus to reach him and reach them. You had to go through all kinds of, of magical routines. And then you could never be sure because the gods were kind of capricious and they could kind of do whatever they felt like doing. And there was no moral standards in their gods. In fact, their, the, the ancient world, the equivalent of a modern soap opera, is the ancient idolatrous system. Probably the root of soap operas. All you need to do, the kids have been studying in school Greek mythology. If you really study the true versions, not the watered-down ones that they give to the grammar school kids, you'll find out it's like watching at-night TV, prime-time TV. That's how they got entertained in the ancient world. The tragedies, they believed their gods were filled with all of this undependability. They weren't really near. They were not personal. You almost take it for granted. You know why? Because you've grown up in a culture that primarily believes in the Judeo-Christian ethic, which starts right here in the book of Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. And God's revelation presents a God who's not capricious, who's not just blind power, who's not just some great mystery 
that somehow is gutting the universe. He's a personal God who reveals the way he thinks, the way he feels, the way he decides. And you all almost take it for granted, but I want to tell you something. In our culture today, there is a massive invasion against the biblical concept of a personal, moral God. Right in school, it comes very subtly. We're going to meditate. We're going to, we're going to empty our minds. We're going to have a relaxation technique. Very few of the teachers are even aware of the philosophical, spiritual base that that is coming from. You see, the idea in Eastern mysticism is, is that in, in order to get in touch with what is beyond out there, whatever it might be, you've got to empty yourself of your humanness. You've got to empty your conscious mind of its reasoning power. And you need to just let yourself feel. You need to just enter into the music. You need to just enter into the silence. You've got it from everything right up in a devastating invasion, especially of our children. And parent, you need to watch out. You need to be alert. It's totally different from what Moses is telling you about God. The true God of heaven is not saying, empty your mind. He's saying, listen to me. Think. Pay attention. I'm going to communicate to you in a rational word. It's a big difference between the Bible and all the other religions. The word is important. It's the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And God revealed to us in a way that we could think about it. We could feel about it. We could decide about it. Beware when you journey and empty your mind. You could be walking right into the pit of hell. Because the spiritual battle is incredibly intense. And the lines are getting more and more drawn. And Moses is saying, Israel, Israel, you will be renowned among the nations because of your personal relationship with the living God. And you will be renowned among the nations because what nation has moral, ethical principles like this people? We are facing an incredible slippage in moral standards. The rejection of God's moral law by our culture has caused a simple trip to the mall to become a venture into the jungle of potential violence. When our kids go off to kindergarten, we cannot be sure some murderous evil will not barge into their classroom and unload his deadly fire against our most treasured little ones. If you are Jewish, I pray that you will cherish the incredible gift that Adonai gave to your people to share with the world at Mount Sinai. But all of us need to realize that there is only one man who has ever completely followed these priceless commands. His name is Jesus Christ, and he did far more than teach us about God's moral law. He also revealed God's mercy and love and through his sacrificial death he paid in full for our moral debt. When he rose again, he demonstrated his power to create a new spiritual life inside of you. You may cherish the Ten Commandments, but until you cherish Jesus Christ, the author of these commandments, and trust him for forgiveness, you will never be able to keep the standard. Thank you.